Hello, welcome to the weekly show from London's home of big thinking, How To Academy. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and one of the curators of our programme. This week's show stars one of the most acclaimed actors of our time. From My Left Foot to Killing Eve, Fiona Shaw has been an integral presence in Irish and British drama for three decades. She spoke to Matthew Stadlin earlier this year in a live stream event. So we could just jump off at any point. I mean, there are so many starting points. But first of all, what's going on in your mind at the moment? Because it must be a deeply strange time for someone who's an actress, even though, thanks to all the coronavirus tests you do, you still get to act. Yeah, I don't think there's very much going on in in my mind. I think survival is in sort of dulling the mind. So my days are slipping by with immense speed. The less I do, the faster the day seems to go. And in the afternoon, I paint worse and worse. I seem to get worse at painting rather than better. But none of that matters if it means that shortly after the six o'clock news, I can kind of put down my paintbrush and head towards an evening of watching yet another film. So not a lot is going on, though I have, of course, been concerned about the state of the world. I mean, I read a lot about the uh, situation, about the numbers, about the science. You know, we, we, we've all become new scientists, haven't we? That's what's going on in my mind. It's such a difficult time for your peers, though, isn't it? Because everyone wants to be in a live auditorium, sharing that experience with other people. And in the case of the actors themselves, it's their livelihood. Yeah, I think two things have happened, actually. It's, it's um, very, the culture, if you can call it, if there is a thing called the culture, has moved forward very fast in three years. And so even, you know, Killing Eve, which was a, a series that I so enjoyed I haven't so enjoyed being in and will continue to be in. It seemed very cutting edge three years ago. I think already uh, some of these series that have dealt with the luxury of killing or the leisure of excitement have been hijacked by, of course, huge political movements, not least Black Lives Matter, which has turned everything on its head in a really good way because what's happened is that we've all had to stop being parochial about our views about the theatre or culture or politics or inclusion. And I think that a wake-up call has happened at the very moment that the sky has fallen in on us with this coronavirus. So it's a very interesting time in one way. It's just that we're all stuck thinking about it, you know, in our kitchens rather than um, doing something about it. So uh, I think my fellows in the theatre, I feel very, very sorry for. I think that the... revolution of inclusion is only just beginning and I hope that when you know we all get out of this state of Britain marvellous things that will uh, reflect back at, you know a braver newer world. The late great Jonathan Miller sitting in a, a front room not too far from probably where you are right now not not in your not in your house but in a similar part of London I think he told me ages ago again for one of my five minutes with that works of art have an afterlife so if you imagine a play that was, that was written on the eve of the First World War, it would be viewed by its audience very differently in 1913, 1914 than it would be if it was put on in 1919, 1920, or indeed 1925, because the perspective of the audience changes. And so the lens through which that work of art is viewed is different. So it's quite interesting, I think, what you say about Killing Eve, and indeed almost everything that was produced before the pandemic, because we look back at that time now, some of us, as though it was an entirely alien environment. We're touching each other, we're being physical, we're in the same room together. Yes, I was interested to say that about Jonathan, because he once gave me a lecture on why why there is no God. He was was brilliant on it, about the fascinating mystery of the DNA of trees, and that was ample for us to be worried about. Um, Yeah, I think that the great things surmount gender, politics, and meaning, therefore, can they're sort of prisms through which meaning can be ricocheted. So, of course, what needs to happen, and this is probably the battle between our idea of conservative theatre, which is sort of, you know, theatre that just replays something, and theatre that really throws a brilliant piece of writing up against a wall and sees how it fractures using the time we're in 
to explore its now meanings. And that's been a very, very valid and very enjoyable experience for those who've been experimenting in the last 20 years. And I think that's going to happen again now. And that would be very interesting to view the classics through this new explosion of awareness that we have in the world. When you play a part in in Medea or in Electra, a thousands of years old part, what do you do as an actor and a thinker to inhabit that part, to inhabit that space, to try to understand what was going on at that time? Well, you, you don't try and do that. I mean, usually, A, you're dealing with translation and the period of the translator is a very important, you know, when, when did he or she translate it? But you really try and find another, it's, it's like playing squash. You know, you hit the ball off the side wall rather than off the main wall. So what you're trying to do is, so for instance, with Medea, we thought of it as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, a play about a husband and wife wittily eating the face off each other. And weirdly, when I thought of Medea as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you could find much more in it than in any sense of sort of Greek argument about the good and the bad. And the more you allow the complication or how we we flatter ourselves that we're more complicated now than people were in the past, which is a complete misnomer. Uh, We always patronize the past as if they were simpler. They were simpler in one way, but they certainly weren't simpler in terms of emotional truth. You discover that even the Greeks uh, had put in all the contradictions, all the contradictions between a husband and a wife, all the hopes between a husband and wife, all the romance between a husband and wife, that they were all there then. And so I think that's how we broke into Medea. We, We began to think of it as and also uh, about stardom, which had become at that time sports stardom. So there was a wonderful, wonderful uh, film about David Beckham and how he was always watching his own matches in his gorgeous kitchen. And somehow Jason, who is, you know, the great sportsman in, in the Greek realm, became in our minds David Beckham. And so you find a way of, of finding someone who holds that kind of iconic value and you're able to read it through the present. It's impossible to read it through the past. How do we make sure when we return to the theatre that people from every sort of background has access to and interest in the, some of the sorts of plays that you've done in the past? Is it just about school trips? Is it just about education? How do we make sure that society brings us all in? I think the, the privileged sort of um, diachronic, which is a very Jonathan Miller word, the privileged ownership of the theatre has to humbly now bow down and see what the culture wants from the theatre. This goes to everything from Peter Brook, who used to talk about pricing. He used to say the theatre was money, it was about the ticket price. And so at the Bouffe you know, the, in Paris, the tickets were all five or 10 euros, something, something people could afford. The same price as a cinema ticket, and it should be no more than that. You also have to, of course, go to school. So it, it, the, the theatre was a reflection of a sort of insular society, and now I hope will be a, a reflection of a much broader society. So it is schools, it's education, it's I, I mean, I'm not going to wander into territory that I shouldn't, but I, I think private education has to really look at itself. And um, we live in a public world. We share a world. We should share the education. We should share the great teachers with everybody. And, and then culture can be chosen or thrown out. I mean, we don't have to love things that are old, but if they hold meaning and if they have value, then they are worth owning because they're knowledge for free. And, um, I just hope that something revolutionary would happen. In fact, I really don't want to see any other plays that I might have been able to see before the pandemic, after the pandemic. Take us back to what it was like in a theatre, in a, in a live space, in the world pre-pandemic, for you as an actor. Because for us as, a, as an audience, part of the excitement is you just don't quite know what's going to happen. It's similar with classical music, the comparison of listening to something at home and then actually seeing it live, I suppose, pop music, rock music as well. With theatre, it's very different from film. Yes, if you haven't seen a film before, there's a degree of uncertainty, but you know that it's already a finished article when you embark upon it. What's it like with the theatre when you and the audience are both going through an experience together? I suppose that would be applicable to all art. You know, when you see something, a piece of art that is witty, holds I mean, just a piece of a painting or a piece of sculpture or uh, you are forced 
not to think about the object, but about yourself. And it's kind of a signpost to your, to, it sort of says, look in there. You know, in, in the 18th century, people went to see restoration comedies and they were laughing at people, betraying each other on stage and lying to each other. And then, you know, they would have had to leave and go out and face each other and say, but of course, we're not like that, are we? You know, because they probably are. And I think the joy of both performing in the theatre and performing and exciting an audience and the audience being excited is that the rhythm of the performer's heartbeat, you know, is absolutely accelerated by the excitement of what it is, of the intensity of whatever the moment is. And ideally, the audience's heartbeat is also excited. More than that, the synapses in their brain are excited. And so they're not just saying, yeah, kill him, Hamlet. (laughs) They're not just for the people on the stage or against them. They are them. It's a sort of, it's a way of swallowing whole another world that you can sort of be. And that happens when the heartbeats of everybody are high. And it, it also happens when you look at a painting that is stunning or when you hear an Emily Dickinson poem or something. She says something like, I heard a fly buzz when I died. You think, what, what? How can you hear something when you die? A- anything that makes reality twist and turn so that you're forced to, to bend your expectations. And it stops you thinking about the... The grocery list, you know, it it allows you to question everything and to see the ordinary things in you. I think that is what great art does. It is not about seeing great things and saying great things about great things. It's saying very unusual things about very ordinary things. So when you're on stage, are you aware of the atmosphere? Are you aware of what you are participating in? Are you aware of what you're creating? Or are you so much involved in the character that you don't see that? So if I were interviewing you now on stage in front of hundreds of people, absolutely part of the experience for me would be the audience and how they were reacting primarily to you, but also to me and how I and you were engaging with them. But when you're an actor, I could imagine it might be slightly different because are you allowed, is there any brain space to feel the atmosphere, to feel what's going on in the room beyond what you're inhabiting. Acting is entirely a conversation with the audience. That's what it is. And when the group is tuned up together well, they're conversing with each other and with the audience. It's actually stand-up comedy, all of it, tragedy or whatever it is. It's fundamentally a conversation. There is absolutely no point in concentrating on a play and excluding the audience. If you're going to be or not to be, that has the question. I'm really feeling this. If it's not communicating to the audience and they're not... Uh, responding. So it's why people love making audiences laugh. Of course, the dangerous thing is then you start making them laugh and forget about the reason why they may be laughing. And so very often plays go off the rails when when actors start making the audience laugh instead of really uh, concentrating on enjoying their laugh, but allowing the the story, you know, allowing it to be a significant hold on on each other. So it's, it is an entire conversation and it's the most exciting conversation in the world because it is different every night. And, and people often blame the audience if the show hasn't gone well. They say, oh, the audience was no good tonight. That's very rarely the case. It's that the actors were not tuned. It's, just, it's very like tennis or something. You know, if you keep on scoring double faults, it, it's not the audience's fault. So if you do t- say a line on stage that you, you know is supposed to be funny, are you aware then... Unusual things. I, I remember doing um, Happy Days, you know, Beckett's play, Happy Days, and we didn't know how to do it. And it, it, it rehearsing it is the most gloomy thing in the world because in Happy Days, the woman is buried up to her waist first and then up to her neck, and she never finishes a phrase ever. So she never finishes a whole sentence. So, you know, many people have seen it as something like an element of Alzheimer's or memory loss or just, but it, it, it really is a brilliant idea about the way in which we lose, as I'm saying we are now during the pandemic, that we're losing sections of our brains or our memories. And I thought this is going to be a disaster, this play, but maybe that's Beckett. Maybe he doesn't mind that it's a disaster. He had said that boredom isn't such a bad thing. That's the one thing that would be kind of the sin against uh, all performers is, is to cause boredom. And I we opened at the National Theatre and on the first preview, I, I was dreading. And I thought, well, I'll just do it. Um, each phrase finishes. And so the actor has to make up the end of the phrase in your mind so you knew what the phrase might be. She she has wonderful lines like, that day, that day, when the last guest was gone, that day, what day? 
the last guest was gone, you think, what was that? Was that a, a wedding or was it a party? I mean, you, you're, you're forced to, to fill in. But the beginning of the play, uh, the curtain went up, sitting there, and the first line is, another heavenly day. And the audience laugh. And you think, why are they laughing? Jesus Christ, amen. Um, world without end, amen. So she can hardly remember her prayers. She can, and the audience are laughing because they see this woman buried. So this visual and this very simple, another heavenly day, and the audience laugh because they know what play it is, even if the actor doesn't. How do you compare Brecht, Beckett, Ibsen, Pinter? <laughs> I will send in my uh, thesis. Well, Brecht is a very, very interesting writer because he he wrote, you know, Ibsen. Well, let's start with Ibsen then. You know, Ibsen is at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of maybe godlessness, the beginning of getting rid of God. Shakespeare was not a great believer in God. He never refers to God, but they refer to Jove or they'll, they'll talk to the stars. They'll always be sort of talking to something bigger than themselves. But as the world became more introverted, Brecht was able to take a theatre and be suspicious of every seduction technique of the theatre so that if you were playing a water seller, you'd say, I am Wang, I'm a water seller, even though, and I live in the Sichuan province. And you think, no, you don't. You're not Wang. You're not even Chinese. And you certainly don't live in the Sichuan province. He goes, yeah, I know all that, but let's just say I am. So he cleverly invented a theatre that allowed you to feel that you didn't have to have feelings about being seduced by the actor. But then he would write brilliant lines, you know. Man's life is so horrible that in one go he might throw it away. I mean, he'll suddenly put in an emotional line right in the middle of a play that is ostensibly about an argument. So he wanted you to see the argument, something the Greeks had done. And um, Beckett is sort of his grandchild, really. And Beckett is the genius of geniuses because Beckett uh, began to see almost the abstraction of the human being where you're completely a person. And nearly everything that Beckett's written is a quotation of something he heard. You know, a little later when she was quite forgotten, she began to, a little later when as though she had never been, it never been, began to waltz. So he, he would get the sort of rhythm of people's crazy minds, the kind of debris of their minds. And then he would just sort of pull a lever and, the whole audience kind of stunned by it uh, because he's a brilliant storyteller. So they all have that. They get all great storytellers and they all use different methods to get there. And they're all, they're all creatures of their own time. I think that is what, you know, Jonathan Miller saying great plays always can be re-looked at is that a Beckett play may not look like a Beckett play in a hundred years time, but fundamentally it'd be a Beckett play. It won't be a Beckett play if it's kept by exactly the same rules that are set now, it'll need to fragment to adjust to the period in the future. You, yourself, on your mother's side are a Shaw, as in Bernard Shaw, and you took the name Shaw, didn't you, because of that link? I'm you not sure. Were, you were a Fiona Wilson, you were a <laughs> Fiona Wilson before, and you couldn't be that because there was already a Fiona Wilson, I think. And, and so you changed your name to Shaw, and you, ha you have, as I say, a family link. Well, my, my, when I was at RADA, I won a thing called the, the Bancroft uh, the Gold Medal and or, no, the Ronson Prize. And with the Ronson Prize, you got a sort of blurb of publicity. And at that moment, I discovered that there was another Fiona Wilson in equity. So I had to change my name. So my grandmother had been a Shaw. So I took the name Shaw partially because it was very short and partially because George Bernard Shaw's bust was in the middle of the staircase at Rada. But I think there's only a connection. I mean, I don't think it's, he, he wasn't my great uncle or anything like that. There may be a connection. The Shaw clan is probably quite big. Probably quite big. You were brought up in Ireland. So if we want to claim you as a national treasure in this country, I don't know whether we can. I don't think you need to claim as a national treasure. I think you. We, we, I think that maybe that may be already a slightly uh, old-fashioned way of looking at any of our uh, contributions to where we all live. But what did your upbringing teach you in terms of taking to the stage and becoming an actor? Tell us a little bit about the genesis of that. Well, there certainly wasn't any, you know, official acting in my family. But I come from a family of great of very good musicians. My mother plays the piano and still and sings every evening on her piano. My uncle was a very good pianist. My brother, Mark, is a superb 
wit, very, very witty, very funny. And there was a kind of tradition of entertaining at home, maybe, or, or in the drawing room in, in a 19th century manner. But there was nothing official. I, I don't know whether with time I, I see it as both unlikely and inevitable. I, I just adored doing poetry. I loved speaking poetry. There was not really much theatre locally. There was an amateur dramatics company and there was a university I went to. These. But I, I think I just sort of stumbled towards it. And then when I came to London and went to Rada, I trained properly and sort of began to see what it was and that it, its technical demands made it much more exciting because you could then face the sort of igers and climb these igers of these parts and understand how to climb them. It, it doesn't mean you get to the top, but you'd at least know how to put the crampons in. So I, I you know, I, I, it was an unlikely choice in a way, but I'm, I must say I'm very glad I did it. Your father wasn't at all keen on the idea. I think, you know, he was of a generation. In fact, it's his birthday. He's now left us and gone to heaven, but his birthday is next week and he would be a hundred. So, you wow. know, think of that. He was from a generation who I think saw acting as both flighty, hopeless, not very academic and um, probably morally rather dubious profession. But I mean, that was his very limited understanding. I don't think he knew many actresses. He, he practiced as a doctor in London for a while. And I think he met some unfortunate actresses and probably they gave him a bad review of, of it as a profession. But it's been a very good profession to me. How do you pull yourself out of the, the shadow of that idea that a significant figure in your life didn't think that the idea of the career you wanted to pursue was a particularly good one? How do you sort of free yourself from that? Because a lot of people feel quite strong pressure from one or both of their parents. So to kick against that, Quite interesting. Yes, I think there are two things. I think there was more pressure on my brothers to have a profession that, you know, you could stand up and be counted by my elder brother, John, and my younger brother, Mark, and my youngest brother, Peter, that maybe they weren't taking so much notice of the daughter in the house. Uh, but the pressure was huge in that I was furious with my father and very both shy about it and embarrassed about it. And of course, when somebody's against you doing something, you think you're going to fail at it. And you're pretty sure. The only thing is, if you don't fail at it, if you, so when I, he, to give him his due, he did then pay my fees at RADA. He said, if you do a degree in something first, I will support you in the next thing. So I did my degree in philosophy and then I applied for RADA and he did pay my fees and was very supportive. And I think I worked much harder rather than I would have if I'd had a father who wasn't so against it. I was determined to apply myself in a way that I had not to my academic studies, to put it mildly. Let's talk about line learning because I, I don't begin to understand how you go about that and how you manage both at the same time to get the learning of it, the, the grammar of it, the structure of it, the language right, but also then put in so much of your thinking and of yourself. So I think of, say, a classical pianist. They've got to wrestle both with the technique and, and, and the notes and, and, and get that all right. And then there's got to be, or maybe the other stuff comes first, there's got to be the, the passion, the emotion. Take the wasteland, for example. How do you manage that? Well, I can only say that, you know, for each thing, you, you learn it in a different way. But like pianists, you know, pianists have to practice eight hours a day they're pianists because they want to practice eight hours a day. I, I think learning music must be very hard. I don't think it's easier for the pianist. It's just that they do it all the time and they love it so much that they're willing to do it all the time. I have to say line learning is similar. I don't think my brain is constructed in a different way. And I certainly don't go around sort of quoting uh, lumps of poetry just to entertain myself. It's, I think what you're trying to do is to capture your own mind to find something that will explode the line in somebody else's mind. And for that, the more you see the three dimensions of the line, the more exciting it is. So in the wasteland, you know, April is the cruelest month it begins with. Well, you can already send people to sleep with that, or you can really think about it. In what way is April the cruelest month? Or who's saying that? Who's saying April is the cruelest month? And in my mind, it was a friend of mine's mother I absolutely could see her going, April is the cruelest month because it doesn't have to be a line that you have to take terribly seriously. 
breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. You said earlier that in a way all theatre is, is stand-up comedy. When you're actually doing comedy, how much fun do you have with that? Because I get the sense it's tremendous fun for you. Uh, you you not no I mean comedy is quite hard to do I hate to say that comedy is hard to do because obviously if you find it funny it really isn't funny but of course you have to find it funny you have to know it's funny but you mustn't play that it's funny because the situation isn't funny so I mean I I think my pleasure has been in finding comic moments in things like Medea or Hedegabra which was very funny and then of course the evening is interesting for the audience because they think it's funny and then it really isn't funny. And I think a lot of very good drama does that, that, that there should be nothing that doesn't have comic moments in it. Electra has no comic moments, I have to say. There's nothing funny in Electra. She's absolutely furious and beginning to end. But in, in uh, anything to do with domestic uh, stories that then turn into, you know, frightful stories, you do have to have the domestic recognisable. And... Comedy is merely that recognition in the audience of, of a situation. And comedy is often built on the gap between someone's expectation and how they're failing to get, to get it, but how they assume they've got it. I mean, it, there are lots of rules of comedy, but it's also you have to have funny bones. I mean, people who aren't funny can't be funny. So it's lovely if you feel that you can be funny. You, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't get the sense that when you take on a great work of art, you think you're overawed by it. You, you think that you over-romanticise it, you think this is such a serious thing and we've really got to, to sort of bring it out in all, in all its grandest way. Get the sense that you really look at it in rather a microscopic way. I mean, I'm thinking again of Jonathan Miller. So he used to say that he would go on the tube and he would observe people very acutely so that when he was directing an opera, if the heroine was crying, she might be fiddling with her handkerchief because actually that's what people do or might do when they're, when they're grieving. I think of Jane Austen and perhaps the genius of Jane Austen is not my favourite author, but perhaps the genius of Jane Austen is that she finds the bigger human picture by really paying attention to the small details of how people interact. Yes, and I suppose the difference between me and Jonathan Miller would be that I wouldn't then ask somebody to play with their handkerchief in order to show that they were grieving. I would find out what they would do if they were grieving. So I do think that the actor and the performance should be connected. I would never tell I would hate a director to tell me what to do to indicate grieving. I would want to find out what it was that it may be a detail. It may be a, a, a behavioral detail, but I, I would need to find it. I don't think you can be told it. An opera singer can be told it, by the way, because they're concentrating on something else. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether great abstract painters necessarily know the paint, where the paint is going to go on the canvas. I think the great thing is ignorance, and I'm very good at that. When I first came to England and I trained at RADA and I went to the Royal Shakespeare Company, I don't think I'd ever seen a Shakespeare play. And there I was playing Celia in one. And people say, are you going to play that like that? And I'd say, well, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just you know, trying it. And of course, I now realise that was a really, really good thing, that I had no clue how to play it. I didn't know how Peggy Ashcroft had played it or Vanessa Redgrave had played it. I just was trying to find out one thing being true and the next thing being true and the next step being true. And, and that way you find out about the part and you also find out something about yourself because you can't, you know, you can't sit untruly in the part. And it's very good for you to be not true in the part. It's a, the lie is a truth, you know, the truth is a lie. So you, So not knowing how to begin something is a terrifying, but by far the best way to begin. Which leads us to you as a director. Yeah. How does it compare to being an actor? Well, I have mainly directed operas rather than plays because I, I didn't want to really, I think plays are so much belong to the performer that you need stupendous performers and you need to bow to them. You need to sort of garden them. They just need to be gardened and allowed to, to grow. And I, in the future, well might do some, but I felt as an actor, I didn't want to wander into the territory of my, I felt it would be incestuous in some way. But with opera, the pleasure ha ha I had, I, my first opera was Riders of the Sea, that I did for the ENO, and a pleasure of having these singers in a room who are all now, you know, super intelligent, super physical, super experimental. And so again, trying to find their connection, them as people connected to the action, 
meant that then you find out things that you could never have found out if you came in and went, well, I know that you should sit there on that and stand there on that. Now, the problem of that is that the rehearsal times are very short and you need long rehearsal times to allow people to make mistakes, to discover things, to think, you know, I thought this was about a purple cushion, but actually I think it's about a red cushion or something. You need them to adjust and find their path. And that takes time. And the problem with opera really is that you do need it to be set quite quickly. And so opera singers kind of put on whatever shape you want and then they will act it within that shape. But the really, really exciting thing that happens is when a singer or a performer or an actor takes the thing, owns it and does more than you could have ever imagined. Is it in some ways the greatest art form because it combines language, it combines music, it combines the visual. Yes, I mean, what, what it does do, but very good theatre can do similarly, is that I remember I did the Rape of Lucretia for Glyndebourne, and, you know, Alan Clayton is one of the great singers, great tenors in the country, but also one of the greatest actors in the country. And to have somebody from 2,000 years ago putting a coat onto somebody now who's just been raped... And to have Alan grab that person's child at the same time, you know, that moment of music making you feel the situation, the language of what people are speaking, making you hear the thought, but the opera making you intensely identify with two things at the same time that themselves clash is a sort of mind blowing experience. And the fact that the eye and the ear can be assaulted and at that level, all the time, is it's very rare and it's great. It's great. It is a wonderful art form. We haven't talked about chemistry, non-sexual chemistry, on stage or on set. Does that just happen, or is it something you can cultivate? Well, I think you... I, I don't know what to say about that. Some people probably get away with it. I, I, I don't know. I think you can't. I mean, ideally, you know, it's an animal form of communication, so it's very good if you like... It's very good if you like the whole group, actually. There should be people you want to go on holidays with. You know? It matters whether you like the people that you're acting with. It, it certainly would get in the way if you disliked them or they disliked you. Yeah. But are there some actors with whom you think, yeah, I can't wait to act with this person, man or woman, because I just know that we have this great thing going on when we're on stage? Yeah, always. I mean, by the time you, you are in that situation, hopefully you, you've met at auditions or you've met at the meeting or you've been introduced or you're already admirers of them or so, you know, everybody comes openly. Now also people are full of course of, of nervous, uh, maybe peculiarities or you have to adjust to all of those things. Very few actors act entirely on their own, but I mean, you can be in all people. I remember I, I did two plays with Geraldine McEwen, who was a superb actress and she always kept most of us at bay in a really uh, dignified way. She was a tremendous performer, and it was a great privilege to be in a room with her. Michael Caine wrote a book about how to be an actor, essentially. I interviewed him about it on stage. Uh, he, I think he told a, a story when he was at a, a drama school where the teacher said you, something along the lines of, you're, you're not a very good actor, Michael. Now F off and become a star. Do you think there's a difference between being a star and a top actor? I do, and I do. I mean, part of that is in the perception of the person. I don't think you have to be a very good actor to be a star. But in general, when I've met stars, they work very hard at it. I, I don't think anyone is a star entirely by accident. They may be just very good at being a star, but it's very hard work being a star. I think they work very hard at it. And I, I, I don't think it's easy work either. I think they... They have to be on all the time. They have to be available to the world all the time. An actor is quite a different thing. It's, it overlaps in some way because sometimes a performance draws huge attention to the performer and they sort of behave like stars. And some people are very good actors and they're stars. Do, do you notice the difference when you turn up in a major role in a primetime show like Killing Eve? Do, do people come up to you much more on the street? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, Kinney Eve, it's astonishing how many people come up to, to me. I mean, I, you know, things like, obviously, you know, this, this is just the medium when you've got things like Harry Potter, which I was also in, is that the world sees it. So you couldn't go to, you know, China without being recognised because everybody in the world has seen those films. So I always find going through airports quite hard because children come up or pull my 
elbow or point at me or get cross at me or something. So, you know, I've always said that with children, but with Killing Eve, it's with, uh, yeah, adults. <laughs> hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've won so many awards. Do you care about awards? No, I mean, I, I, when I was young, I think I was delighted to win awards. I think I had in my mind that if I couldn't win an award... I wasn't trying to win awards, but if you win an award in your 20s, then at least you feel that you have a fighting chance of surviving in the profession. I think that that was it. And the award usually comes long after the play. Uh, And it's like opening nights when the thing really, really takes off. Your relief is by far the the greater feeling rather than any sense of triumph. It's really relief. But an award is, is a wonderful, you know, gift of generosity by the people who've judged that thing to be worthy of an award. But equally, I think some very, very good performances don't get awards that should. I mean, I do, I do see that all the time. So you have to take them slightly with a pinch of salt. There are obvious differences between theatre and the screen. Are there such obvious differences between film and telly? Uh, uh, probably... I mean, television was very different to film until recently, but the television long form, which is like a Dickens novel, isn't it now? You can tell everything in, you know, six episodes or 20 episodes or 100 episodes, means that scenes can be played out. In film, there's very little dialogue. And in film, there's a particular kind of actor who usually has a gift of interiority, someone you love looking at. They don't have to do anything. They're just there, and you love looking at them because they have a very open interior life. Now, that is a gift. It's a gift from God, I think. I mean, it's just a gift or it's sometimes connected to some identity lack. I, I, I sometimes think, and you often read the stories of great actors, that they discovered something peculiar about their childhoods that, was, that dislodged them or made them unrooted. So, you know, Maybe happy, contented people do not make the best stars, actually. That stars are something about something unfinished in the spirit of the person that lies in the eyes, which are the kind of soul. So that's, and film actors have that. There's also very polished film actors who are very good at language, etc. In television, you have the personality actor. And the problem for the television actors is they end up being cast all the time as the same sort of person. But now that they range of performance within a performance can be so, you know, you have somebody who has been, I don't know, the teacher and rather in charge for one part of it, and you suddenly see them falling apart in episode six, means that that person might have only been the teacher in the movie, but they get to be the teacher who falls apart and is an alcoholic in in the six-parter. And so actors are getting this much better practice through TV series than they ever got in movies. So there is that difference. Also, we're all watching things on much bigger televisions or on screens on my wall. I I have a, a projector, so I just show it on the wall because it makes it like a little mini cinema, you know, so I watch everything on a wall. So we're all in mini cinemas all the time, I think, now. We've made cinematic size out of a small form. You've worked or been involved in projects involving Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She obviously was involved in Killing Eve, at least in the first series. She, she wrote the, the incredible Fleabag. You were nominated for your, your sort of cameo in Fleabag. It was, such a, it was such a joyous thing, Fleabag. Tell us in a minute your view, your perspective on that? Well, I, I, I could tell you in an hour my, my view on Phoebe Waller-Bridge, that she's like a sort of prophet. and She is an absolutely astonishing phenomenon. And you cannot believe that somebody could be so generous-hearted and have had such a tough time, actually, I think, coming up through the, the comedy world that she had to in pubs and writing. And, but she has honed her craft. She works very, very hard at her writing. And 
and then has a sort of freedom on top to spin it or turn it in any way she likes. She's a she's a wonderful person, and I'm so glad that everything's happened with the house. But we did. She had written the first series of Killing Eve, which she had to explain to me. I, I found it very very hard. I kept on saying, "How would Carolyn travel back from France? You have to take a plane." She said, "It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how she travels. It so matters to me." And of course, it wouldn't matter. I'd say, "Oh, private plane." Once I put in a, once I put in something, I I was all right. And then she uh, she wouldn't she didn't write the second series because she was so the wonderful Emerald Fennell wrote that which is another wonderful person so she was busy writing her Fleabag second series and um, I saw maybe I saw the first I saw the first episode of it in the BFI and I thought it was one of the best first episodes of of, of anything I'd ever seen which was a, a dinner party scene of a family in a restaurant and it was just beautifully crafted, brilliantly performed and executed and was unleashing a hugely brilliant story. And then she rang me up and said, will you come in and do a bit of, um, will you do something? And I, I was in the middle of doing an opera, actually. I was directing an opera. I said, I, I won't have time to do the opera and Killing Eve and that. And something got delayed. So there was suddenly a day in which I could go. So I went and did my psychotherapist for her. I could ask you another thousand questions, but I want to include audience questions. So here goes with the Q&A. Chloe wants to know, do you have any advice for an actor who's about to come out of drama school? Must be pretty tricky at the moment. You're going to be a member of a historic generation. And I'm sure that'll be all to the good in the very long term. As people say, oh my God, you're one of those people who came out halfway through the pan pandemic. How did you... I would... Um, advise you to do everything that interests you now. Just stimulate your mind with all sorts of art. I mean, you just, you won't even be able to go traveling. So I, 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 I certainly, the problem for the actor coming out now in, into the world is that you can't perform to an audience and no amount of Zoom experiments will allow you to have the experience of playing, of having somebody reply back to you silently or laughingly or, so I would just say, stay stimulated, stay hopeful, stay awake and say, and maybe consolidate your relationships with others. If there's a group of you who like making work together or have done a drama school, keep doing it. If you're in a group or a duo or two of you or three of you who like working together, just keep making things because all of it is grist to the mill, genuinely. Douglas says, what about Chekhov? What about Chekhov? Well, I, I name-checked some of the greats and I left Chekhov out. Oh, Chekhov's great. <laughs> um, Chekhov's great. I, I mean, we, we, you know, we, we borrowed Chekhov and made Chekhov very English. But I, I, some years ago, I did um, The Seagull with Peter Stein, the great German director, and we did it at the Edinburgh Festival. And there's a pause in the middle of Act One where they're all looking out of the forest in a Chekhovian way and they're all thinking about their lives, which are falling apart. And... There's a pause. And in Chekhov, we always have a pause in England of about five seconds because people get embarrassed at the pause <coughs> and start coughing and getting uh, upset. But in because he was such a devotee of the Russian way of doing things, we had a pause of about two and a half minutes. And we would sit there looking out at the audience, looking at the forest, and the audience began to titter. And then they would went silent, then they'd laugh again, then silent, and then laugh again. And then they began to cry because they began to get sucked into that pause that was really, again, not about what was going on on the stage, but what's going on in your mind. Beckett's very good at this too. And uh, they began to cry, and it was the most astonishing experience because we were all very relieved when somebody finally says, I was at the opera last night or something. But I think Chekhov was a genius at understanding the epic moment in the tiny, ordinary moment. <laughs> Claire's got a good question. How did you get through the audition processes and any experiences of rejection before making your name? I have to say I had a rather easy ride. I, I, I left RADA and I made a film for the BBC and then I went straight to the National Theatre. So I, I was very lucky. I have auditioned for things, but not very much. And I've often not got the things that I auditioned for. And I think you've just got to either go out in the garden and scream or know they're wrong or die of regret or just think maybe they're wrong. <laughs> Quite difficult though, rejection, isn't it? 
I think it's terrible because you know you don't know the rules of the game. It's not like saying if you can jump 12 feet, you can have this part. It's not as clear as that. So the standard is very good. People are very, but you know, there is always unconscious bias in everybody's choice of everything. And you have to therefore see it as a, as a, you know, you can try and be the best you can be. And if you are very good, I'll tell you one piece of advice. An actress told me it rather. Very interesting uh, woman called Cassie McFerlin. I have never seen her since in 35 years. And she said, to get a part, you really have to want it. And I think that's very true. Something subconscious emanates from you when you really want it. Jane says, how do you decide which projects to do and what makes them stand out for you? Horrible decision. Horrible, horrible time. I, you know, I, I have worked a lot in my life, but I've often had huge periods where I'm going, I don't know what I want to do next. In general, I try and want to do the thing that's opposite to what I have done. I mean, this is in the theatre. Obviously, in, in film and television, you have to wait to be asked. I mean, it's as simple as that. You, you, it's, it's annoying, unless you are somebody genius like Michaela Cole and write something brilliant that changes the world. But in, in general, you, uh, you try and do things that are opposite. I, I found it very hard. I mean, sometimes you don't want to do something. I didn't want to do Medea, and I didn't particularly want to do Testament of Mary. But when things come along that are really obvious that you should do and you know you should do them it's best just to get over yourself and just put your mind to it but it's 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 quite hard it's quite hard finding things i the, the waste center was a very hard thing to find it doesn't just land i i've been asked to do a poem in germany i've been asked to do the waste center in english while a german actress did it in german and so i tried to learn it because i thought it'd be a good exercise to learn it and at that moment deborah warner had been asked to do something not on a the, in a theater in Brussels. She said, have you got anything you could do in not a theatre in Brussels? I said, I have. I have a poem. And we slowly began to put a non-theatre piece in a non-theatre. And that's why the thing grew. Sometimes an idea sort of muddles its way towards itself. Will you tell us very briefly about Deborah Warner? Because I think you've got a very important professional relationship with her. And how, how key is it to have a, a, I mean, I mentioned the word chemistry in the context of actors and actors earlier, but how key is it to have a good chemistry or a really good understanding with a director? And do you enjoy repeatedly working with the same person? Well, we haven't worked together about six years now, but at the time that we did work together over two decades, I think we didn't work all the time together either. I think people felt we did because the, the things that I did with Deborah were so huge and they often travel. They went to Paris or New York or Germany. We did the second went to Germany and, and went to the uh, Salzburg Festival. Things now that could not happen due to Brexit just couldn't happen. It's an absolutely disastrous situation um, for everybody, for everybody. The cultural loss, the, the cultural cost, the cultural exchange, the benignity of that, gone. But it was fantastic to have somebody who was willing, as I said earlier, when you walk into a new play and you don't know anything about it. It's very useful if you're with somebody who you know also doesn't know anything about it, but who has in the past proved, proved to you that there's a way of finding something out about it. So you, you know, you head in, climb these mountains, at least with somebody else who has climbed a mountain before. Esme, one of our excellent producers, she was saying in the green room, asking me actually when you weren't there for a moment, about the amazing portraits of you, I think, in the National Portrait Gallery. And Sue wants to know, how did that wonderful portrait by Victoria Russell come about? It came about because Victoria Russell, who is an absolutely brilliant artist, she was introduced to me. Uh, I was performing in the West End, and she had won the National Portrait Gallery competition, the uh, BP Award, as it was then. I think it stopped now. And you're allowed to choose somebody to paint. And so she chose me. And so we had an astonishing exchange over about six months when she came backstage in the theatre. I, I, I wanted to see whatever she wanted to see. She would follow me from the dressing room to the stage and then she would go home and she would take a few photographs of me. And then she came to my flat and she would photograph me, you know, fixing my bike or being on the phone or, and in the end she could never find the right pose. And in the end she, I had a dress that I had worn at an award ceremony and they sort of didn't want to wear the posh dress, they didn't want to wear a costume. And she began to say, maybe you should wear panniers. And so we began to play with these panniers and she did two portraits, one in which I wore a, 
18th century corset, which is hangs in the Crawford Gallery in Cork, and one which was this half-dressed in my Marks and Spencer's bra, <laughs> and uh, my dress sort of half undone. So it's a sort of portrait of somebody getting ready or nearly getting ready or never quite committing to anything, which is probably correct. Omar has got a, a good question, picking up on something we touched very vaguely on earlier. It says, are you involved in any activities outside of work that involve young people of or ethnic minorities? Well, I, I am. I mean, not at this very minute, but I do some teaching and I get drawn into various things that I help with. But after the uh, pandemic, I am going to put my mind to that very thing. I think the next generation uh, is the thing that I want to help with. So that is my next long-term project. Spare says, why don't you have social media accounts? You're a great actress and have lots of international fans who would love to know more about your work. Well, they can, they can talk to you about my work. And uh, I, 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 I don't know why I don't. I think it's just habit, isn't it? I don't have... I'm busy being in my life. I don't know if I need to share my... I don't mind at all if people do know about my work. I'm very pleased if they do. Or my non-work. Or my paintings, which I'm very glad nobody ever sees. <laughs> I would steer well clear of social media. You don't have any urge to tell the world about your, your thoughts on this or that, particularly. No. <laughs> Kate says, is there a part you would like to go back and play? And how would you do it differently? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Thanks, Kate. Kate is my cousin. Ah, that's a very, very good question. No, I, I think, look, the, if we had three hours, I would talk about the parts in relation to myself. When I was playing Electra, my brother had, my youngest brother had died. And that was a huge way of sort of exploring a sort of much more heightened grief, though that, that sorrow has never left our family. But, you know, I, I don't know whether I would look at it differently now you know, when I played Hedda Gabler, I was definitely exploring my mother's ill ease. We had moved house when I was younger and my mother was always moving furniture around the house when we were younger. And I used that in Hedda Gabler. And I think I was trying to be my mother, actually. I think so you're sometimes using them for some. You don't really know that at the time that you think you're just playing the part. But of course, there's only your childhood is your only territory that is informing things. So I don't know if there's anything I want to go back and replay there are many things I may have got wrong, but what I did with the plays that I was in was that we tended to play them for a long time so that even if you re were thinking them as you went along, you had time to adjust them, to try and not adjust them in a big way, but you would adjust the decisions and, and allow other things to influence them. But for instance, The Wayside is very hard to do now because there's a wonderful line in The Wayside about falling towers. Well, I performed The Wayside before 911. Now, and at that time, I had a picture of falling towers that were kind of Babylonian. Now they would have to be the 911 towers. And so much of the wasteland would have to be rethought completely. But I'm not sure my brain could do it now, me think it. But that really is the Jonathan Miller point about an afterlife. Yeah. Jane yeah. wants to know, is there any part that you wished you wish you had played or yes. never have? I wished I played Cleopatra and every time it came along, I was either, I couldn't come up with a good enough idea. I didn't want to just do Cleopatra. <laughs> no, here's my Cleopatra. That is not really, you have to have an idea about why you want to do the play. And I didn't play Cleopatra and I, I fear that the moment may have passed. Jen wants to know, what are the key factors that make you say yes to a role or to a script? Being asked. <laughs> That's, Come on. It is so nice being asked. I can't tell you. It's very, very nice being asked. You immediately feel fondly about it. And I think you, I mean, obviously with Miss Jersey, it's not hard to, you know, I, I just wished I was playing, you know, not a muggle. I wanted to play a magic person, but I, I was very happy to be a muggle. And in the end, I was really happy with that family. Um, Harry Melling, who's subsequently become the most brilliant adult actor, played my son, and Richard Griffiths, who was the most adorable and exciting, witty, knowledgeable human being. So that was a privilege to be in that family of muggles. If you don't like something, you can't play it. I, there's lots of things I didn't play, I haven't played, yeah. If well, I don't feel I can do anything good with them, I, I don't do them. 
One more question from the Q&A. Zahid says, I'm studying to be an opera singer at the moment and very interested in your career as an opera director. I loved what you did with Sendrilon. Is that how you say it, Sendrilon? Sendrilon. Sendrilon, apologies. I wanted to ask you if you have any future plans as an opera director and what you think the upcoming generation of singing actors can bring that you haven't seen in our interest in our industry thus far. I'm really glad you say singing actors. I think the thing that needs to happen, which is very hard for opera singers because they are so profoundly involved with their voices and the protection of their voices, is taking emotional and political responsibility for what they sing. Do not just think, well, at college we were told you have to do this when you're, you know, we have to do this if we're in love or just rethink it, live your life and allow the opera to be fed through you, your generation. And it'll look different. It'll feel different. It'll sound different. You know, I think I think opera has held itself back emotionally by by being too appeased by its history. But in terms of design, it's often way ahead of the theatre and way ahead of many forms. But if the singers can get excited about taking responsibility for what they sing rather than, well, one director wanted me to wear a silly hat and one, they should understand it. And if they do, they give the most thrilling performance, as the great opera singers do. They all understand exactly what they're singing. Just want to finish by by asking you this. So we, we touched earlier on how difficult this is for actors at the moment. But Fiona, it feels like such a rupture in human experience, the pandemic. How much do we miss it, do you think, as human beings, as society? How much of a luxury is it? How much, how fundamental is the theatre to us? Because obviously we still have access to film and to television. And, and how big a role will it play, do you think, in our rehabilitation post-pandemic? Well, I think, you know, we've been very spoiled in this country. There are many countries that don't have much theatre because bombs are raining down on top of their heads. And the theatre is pretty irrelevant at that moment. And we've just got this invisible bombardment at the moment of this pandemic. So the theatre, as a luxurious symbol of the stability of British society for the last 60 years, is indeed what it has been and a great place to explore and to destabilise, you know, to explore destabilisation or wrongs or rights. But now that we have experienced not being allowed to be together in that, you can see how fundamental it is for us to be present when somebody expresses something that we all, thousand of us, experience, but have never had it offered in that way. And it civilizes us. You know, the Greeks had it like the whole city would go and watch a play and watch a debate between good or some good and some evil and some good and some evil. They were never as blatant as good and evil and saw the debate and felt each the consciousness of each person feeling that debate. It still has that function and can have that function even more. And I think with such, you know, volatile excitement, I can't wait to go back to the theatre for what I will see in it rather than what I can perform in it. I want to see what this new generation have got to say in, about it. So of course it's very, very fundamental, but it has been a privilege and nobody expects the theater to be flowering when there's a war on. After the war will be a time when the writers should be probably penning now, but, and people, theater makers will start making something that ex expresses uniquely what's happened to us. Well, I think you're, Absolutely wonderful. I haven't seen a, 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 as much of you as I would like to have done. I've seen you in stuff and think you're just brilliant, whatever you do, because you have such an extraordinary range. It's just you really ma manage to capture us when you're performing, whether that's in an Oxfam shop or on the, on the screen at prime time. It's just it's, it's really special. And I love being in your presence. I just always have thought you're a brilliant person. And, and just a very wonderful, just a wonderful presence to repeat that word in society. So long may you continue to be at the heart, the, be the heartbeat of all that and at the heart of things. And I hope that we can move back to theatre as we knew it in the not too distant future and that you will be very central to that. I'm really grateful to you giving us an hour of your time. And I thought there were some really good questions from the Q&A, actually. So thank you to everyone for contributing and for watching. You can become a How To Academy subscriber if you wish. You can't follow Fiona on social media. Oh, you can, I'm sure. I don't know. But you can certainly see Fiona in all sorts of things. And if you go to the BBC iPlayer, I think all of Killing Eve is there for a start. I'm sure there's other stuff as well. 
and you can get Three Men and a Little Lady out, and you can get lots of other films out. You can get all Harry Potter. I mean, there's just so much. So, Fiona, thank you for giving us your time. It's been really lovely. Thank you, Matt. This week's show starred Fiona Shaw and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. The producers were Esme Bright and myself, and the editor was John Doughty. You'll find lots more arts and culture in our archive, with a hundred more episodes to enjoy at your leisure at howtoacademy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.